Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Green Luck Weekly Radio at 3CO, of course. And I hope you're having a good morning. Uh, just before we start, um, we'd like to do acknowledgement of country. Um, we acknowledge the elders of the Wurundjeri uh, people of the Kula Nation. Uh, this land was never ceded. Um, it remains stolen land. It always is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, before we go on, I'd just like to announce that um, the program today will be available on podcast and, of course, it's streaming live on the web. Morning, Jacob. Yeah, good morning. How are you? A bit not unwell. You're a bit unwell this morning. Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> just, I might have a bit of a cough, um, but fortunately I'm panelling, so I can sort of just turn know when to turn it off if there's a cough coming. Okay, lots of things happening, and you've just come back from the SOS um, conference. Oh, yeah, so maybe I can give a bit of report Yeah, that'd back. be good. Yeah. Um, so the Student Sustainability Conference, um, for listeners that don't know, it's, um, it's kind of like an annual gathering of um, students who are involved they're usually involved in various sort of environmental collectives um, at the different campuses, um, which is all kind of held together by the Australian Students Environmental Network. So it's a national conference. Um, who are kind of like the main kind of body that organises student sustainability every year. Um, so the conferences usually have, um, you know, workshops on different environmental sec- um, campaigns, um, also other social justice campaigns. They also have sort of practical workshops like, you know, how to grow your own food. Mm, practical stuff. And um, they also have skills workshops relating to different kind of activist skills. Right. Yep, and uh, it obviously was a very interesting uh, conference. And um, so one of the more intre- – and they also have plenaries on different get- with different guest speakers. There was a plenary on just transitions in the Newcastle area. And um, one of the more um, great things about it is um, at the end of the conference is all the conference participants organised a, a big <coughs> mass um, stop Adani action. Great. At the Commonwealth Banks. Um, and... They also had... Um, you know, many different um, sessions related to kind of anti-capitalism. One of the more kind of interesting things about this conference is, compared to some previous years, it's mm. clearly being conceptualised um, with a central theme of anti-capitalism. Good. Um, so much that, you know, um, people call it, it's not just a student sustainability, it's about sorting out shit. That's no, but it's interesting because, you know, that that um, tells me that there's a, a raise awareness about a systemic problem, not just a single issue thing like, you know, it's just environment, no, but the environment is controlled and manipulated by 
by a, a system, an economic system um, called capitalism. And that awareness is, is, is vital in understanding what's going on. So that's good to, to hear, especially from young people, um, you know, who are very busy with their lives, working, studying, and the rest of it. Um, for them to be keeping up with that, that sort of sentiment is um, encouraging, to say the least. And, yeah, stay tuned um, because next year uh, um, it, um, it will likely be the next conference that will be taking place in Melbourne. Mm. So um, clearly the organisers are probably going to look to or, um, link up with the different kind of activist groups that are based in Melbourne, especially FreeCR, which might have a, bit, have a potential um, role to play in the conference. Great. Now, the other thing is, did, did they ever come, have some sort of resolution that came out or, or a uh, list no. of demands? These, co- um, these conferences are just um, gatherings where people it's share experiences. Views. There's no formal... Um, decision making or um, statements that get passed around. Okay, so let's move on to some news eh, before we um, do the interviews. Um, I've got uh, there's a full program today, and be, being in NADOC week, um, I've organised for a speaker from the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, a manager, to come and talk about the achievements of the health service uh, and and what how it was organised and so on. And uh, that's Sue Hedges. And um, at 8.10, we've got Ken Canning, an elder from um, Sydney, who <coughs> will talk about um, in NADOC as a general theme and, and what it means to the Aboriginal community to have um, such a week um, and the progress made by the community as a whole. So, And in between, we have um, news and announcements and everything else. So, let's go on to the first news. And I thought this, this is quite interesting, um, that how bad are things? It's a call, for, call to action for all workers. And um, it's a, uh, almost like an editorial, I suppose. It talks about you know, the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Law, who had said um, in June, uh, actually he, he was talking at the Australian National, National University, and he said that uh, his name is Philip Law, and that people value security. And one way you can get a bit more security is not to demand wage rises. And this is at a time when the Australian Bureau of Statistics has said that there hasn't been proper wage rise since the late 60s for workers. Profit has been on the rise and wages have been held back uh, following the 60s was 80s uh, when the accord restrained um, actual wage rise and, and used the excuse of social wage to replace wage rises and now it's in tatters. So this is what he has said. And when workers don't demand a wage rise because they fear for their jobs, this article says, um, the bosses celebrate. It's exactly what they want. When workers are on their own, they are in a weak position. Only when they are united can they put up a fight against the bosses. So it's a, a, an article that calls for action for, from all workers. And it goes back to the history. And it's very interesting because um, in 1969, Clary O'Shea, who was the Australian um, secretary, well, he's the Tramways Union uh, sec- uh, secretary, I think, uh, and he was uh, arrested uh, by the penal powers against striking. And O'Shea was jailed, resulting in widespread outrage. I think it was the first time a trade unionist was um, arrested. And funny enough, I nursed him in St. Vincent's when he was unwell and I had a long chat to him about all that sort of stuff. So it brings big memories for me. But anyway, 
Um, so several unions called for a 24-hour strike, and uh, the public transport Oh, and electrical power was cut out for the public transport in Victoria. The ACTU eventually called on all unions to not pay fines for industrial action, and the public donated money to pay for any fines imposed on unions. So the key factor, the article says, in this victory was the widespread support for the Tramies Union. A large number of workers at the uh, recent National Day of Action of for the CFMEU, many of whom... Um, defied their bosses to attend along with the militant speeches by the union leaders provide a lot of hope. So the question in the end is whether union leaders have the courage to match words with the deeds and continue the fight with ongoing action. So Green Left Weekly of course will be there throughout the struggle and we support the actions by workers that defend their rights whether it's wages or conditions and we have plenty of that happening lots of um, Training disputes happening all over the place. So the union, um, uh, the, the union targets Longford gas plant, which is uh, one of the things that's um, being mentioned here. Members of the Australian, Australian Workers Union set up a protest outside Esso's Longford gas plant in Victoria because of changes to the maintenance contracts for hundreds of workers in the oil and gas industry. So UGL holds the maintenance contract for ESSO's onshore facilities and offshore platforms. But about 200 workers were today told they had to sign up with the UGL subsidiary MTCT services at between 15% and 30% lower wages or lose the jobs. This is a a pattern since the CUB uh, strikes a couple of years ago. It's ongoing in different industries. They seem to have set a trend here. So uh, likening the dispute to last year's CUB struggle, workers say will stay until they're offered a better pay deal. And Myrtleford is, is going through similar struggles as well. So the, the action is ongoing. More and more unions are actually, your workers are, are jacking up and refusing to cooperate with this sort of uh, uh, belligerent action by employers where they just negate the enterprise bargaining and, and want a new contract. So it's it's not very encouraging, but what's impressive and, and uh, positive is the workers are actually now saying, down tools, we've got to fight this all the way. So that's one sort of trade union um, news. And uh, actually, keeping on the theme, there's something happening in um, Brisbane as well. So public transport... Um, Issues are ongoing in, in um, Brisbane. So what happens, no, actually in Sydney here. So more than 200 people packed into the Pitt Street Uniting Church on the 28th of June to protest the state government's plan to privatize public bus. This is a different angle, but this is a government interfering. So th- there's a proposed privatization of buses in Sydney um, that the West in, uh, of the inner west or region 6 of the metropolitan bus network and is a threat to the entire public transport system in the city. There are 233 routes in regions, regions 6 with uh, commuters taking more than 42 billion trips, million trips um, on these routes every year. So hun- about 1,300 workers are based in the four depots. Their depots uh, these depots are are just the first to be placed in the government's privatization firing. So what does the government say? The Transport Minister, Andrew Constant, told the Australian Financial Review on the 20th of March, they will all be be private. In 10 to 15 years' time, government will not be in the provision of public transport services. So 
public transport, publicly owned, is going to go into private hands, which again is another blow to any ownership by the people of any of these essential services. The Secretary of the Rail, Buses and Tram Employees Union, uh, Bus Division, Chris Preston, told the meeting, um, this coalition government has no mandate to privatize uh, the buses. They were to, they went to the last elections pledging that public transport will not be sold off. And um, the social professor Kurt Le- uh, Iverson from Sydney University outlined the case to keep buses public. He refuted Constance claimed that inner suburban public buses get more complaints than private services on the outskirts of Sydney. And he said that's, this is just not true and that's an excuse they're using to privatize. As usual, public organizations don't make profits. So that's like a, a mantra they repeat over and over again regardless of the actual um, numbers on the, pa- on the, on the you know, papers. So he also um, explored the other government claim that privatization reduces costs, noting that the international experience of privatization shows that while costs may go down initially at the end, they go up again. And we see that now in electricity. They privatize um, power, and today we are facing a 20% hike in, in charges across the country almost. So there's um, a campaign that started quite strongly there. And the community assembly follows a strike by bus drivers on the 18th of May uh, for free fare day implemented by drivers on the 1st of June. And the public meeting in Marrick will organize by June 15 uh, in Lockhart. They'll be, they'll be hosting um, another meeting. And I think that's going to be hosted by the Greens, which is, which is good and it's interesting. They're stepping up. Um, so, so that's another trade union. Um, issue in um, the country and this is the time in New South Wales so do you want to read anything or shall I go on yeah I have some news to share I think we'll get um, there's some interna- there's some international news in the latest Green Left Weekly um, this is an article written by Simon Butler um, about you know how the rebellion against austerity grows in Mel- um, Britain um, you know he starts up the article with you know making the point that few would have predicted um, until recent times that the biggest act at the Glastonbury Music Festival would be a 68-year-old socialist reciting a 200-year-old poem. <laughs> yet um, yet Labour's call, um, leader, Jeremy Corbyn's June 24 speech at Glastonbury attracted what was likely the biggest crowd in the festival's history. You know, um, politics in Britain has shifted again since the June 8 election in which the governing Conservatives lost their majority and the vote for Corbyn-led Labour rose by almost 10 points from the 2015 election. And then, of course, there's the fierce public anger over the criminal neglect that led to London's deadly Grenfell fire has been especially central to this shift. <coughs> and there's a sense... <coughs> um, there's um, there's a sense that a rebellion against the politics of austerity has been unleashed and a sense that enthusiastic crowds and li- li- lively protests will get bigger still. <coughs> <coughs> and the Tory, Tory DUP coalition, he also says that uh, will be unstable <coughs> and possibly um, 
un- unworkable. Uh, many commentators have speculated that an early general election may be unavoidable, perhaps within months. So the battle against um, the austerity measures that are going to be implemented by May and the DUP coalition continues. While she's been rejected by millions, we have to also acknowledge that People did vote for them. They had the largest number of seats in the elections. So that's a huge uphill battle. And, you know, the, the fact that um, Corbyn gained 10 points in a short period just before the elections is really interesting. And sh- the sh- it also shows the speed at which people are turning away from the traditional austerity measures that are being implemented around the world, and particularly in elections for, for um, May. But... Um, you want to continue? The, the um, yes. Yeah, so one of the more interesting things is um, the Tory um, the Tories have made a, formed a coalition with the DUP, and then there's a potential possibility, as people are commenting, stating that you know the coalition will be you know unsustainable, unstable, and potentially possibly. I just said that, yeah. And <coughs> and basically, there's going to be a lot of pressure. Um, you know, for them to maintain their seats um, because, you know, an early general election could be called at any time. Um, but there's also an interesting kind of complication um, and um, due to a power-sharing executive between the largest unis group, DUP, and the Irish Republican Party, Sinn Féin um, collapsing earlier this year. Sinn Féin has um, refused to take part in the executive with the DUP unless there's progress on equity equality and an independent investigation and a D, into a DUP link scandal over the misuse of public fine. And, yeah, one of the complicated issues of this is now um, the British government um, is making a forming a coalition with the DUP undermines the British government's claims to be a neutral broker in negotiations between Sinn Féin and... Well, impossible. <coughs> impossible for them to make that claim. Of course, they will do that. <coughs> Yeah, and um, the 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 art of continues to talk about the scale of threat. Um, the Conservative MPs will come under immense pressure from the establishment, combined with their own sense of political self-preservation, as, as um, Jacob said. And at uh, Glastonbury, Corbyn's speech was interrupted. Um, several times by cheers and applauses and the enormous popularity, and there were thousands, tens of thousands of people there for this festival. It's a music festival, isn't it? Yeah. And anyway, so Corbyn said that politics is actually about everyday life, and that's something people don't connect. They think it's just bureaucrats making policies up in, in, in the um, hill somewhere. But... Um, if you if you make that connection, they they determine everything in life, whether it's your, your, the vegetables you buy in the shops, or the clothes you buy, or paying utility bills or, or transport. Everything is governed by government policy and politics. So what was fascinating about the last seven weeks of election campaigning around Britain um, is a com- the commentariat got it wrong, of course we know that, and the campaign. Um, and he had said that he was proud to lead um, a a lot of people back into politics because they believed there was something uh, on offer for them. And this is in particular uh, important because it drew a lot of young people into um, political discussion. Yes, uh, we've got a a new person joining us today, and that's Grace. 
Um, morning, Grace. Good morning. <laughs> okay, so uh, going on, he also said that um, the election, the Labour election slogan for the many and not the few, um, definitely resonated with uh, many people, and that hence that rise in popularity of Corbyn in England at the last elections. So he ended the the call with um, recognize another world is possible, which is an amazing slogan, and that's been used by many uh, lefty groups around the world. And, of course, the people have got the power, and he certainly um, attracted enormous um, crowd at this particular festival in Glastonbury in, in England. Okay, so shall we have a break before we go on? That should be fun. You've got to remember, no, it's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! The Australian Unemployed Workers Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30, featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, Carlton, from 2 to 5pm. For tickets, phone 96505699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. We're back on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we have welcome back, listeners. Um, we have Lali, um, Grace, hi, and Jacob on the line here. <laughs> Here's Grace joining us um, to boost the program, yep. and she's a newie, I think. Actually, yep. you just finished training, so yeah, she's having a trial run today and see how she goes. And uh, we look forward to her contributing more to the program as time goes by. So let's move on to the next article. It's about the Penalty cut rates, uh, penalty rate cuts. I've got to be dyslexic <laughs> there, didn't I? That's awful. <laughs> so, um, life is about to get tougher for people. Seven, seven hundred thousand workers and their dependents, uh, um, will feel the penalty cut rates for the first of July. I'm sure they're suffering already and uh, they will get, uh, it is also the day politicians will get a two percent Wage rise. I think Malcolm Turnbull's getting about 17,000 <laughs> wage rise in his wow. pay pack. And that's like a, a year's wage for some people who, yeah, totally. who young kids who work in, in, in takeaway joints and things. It's mm-hmm. absolutely makes my blood boil. <laughs> it's a very personal thing in that sense. Okay. So full and part time workers in the retail, fast food, hospitality, and pharmacy industries are the first to be hit. 
the ACTU calculated that casuals in the pharmacy industry will face an annual cut of up to 6,000 as a result of this February ruling by the misnamed Fair Work Commission. And definitely misnamed. It's like the, the, the liberal sca- new uh, get-up style campaign. Have you heard about it? Yes. A fair go. <laughs> yesterday I was watching Sean McCallum and he had a real go at it. He said, fair, look at it, it's white and it's leaning to the right. <laughs> That was very interesting, but anyway, it's funny. Okay, Sunday and holidays rates for hotels and pub workers will be cut by $33.09 to $28.37 an hour. For fast food workers, it drops from 29 to 24 And for retail workers, 30, um, it's about $39 to $29. It's a $10 cut. So these are small biggies. These cuts will mean um, the difference between people being able to meet everyday household expenses, bills, pay the rent or not. And for some, these cuts will mean that they turn the heaters off. Um, and this will this is, a, this is a long-term thing. And come summer, they're going to boil because they won't be able to turn the aircon on. So here we have the MPs who are getting 2% of the wage rise. Backbenchers will get a $4,000 or more wage rise for the 1st of um, July. And I got it wrong. The Prime Minister will get apparently 10000 more. He should donate it to the fast food workers, I reckon. Um, aside from all this, um, the uh, other perks or entitlements, MPs annual base wage, um, will rise from 199,000 to 203,000 and the prime minister's goes from 17,000 to, no, 517, oh, my eyes playing silly buggers with me today, 517,000 to 527,000, of course. So this is a total insult to workers. Workers are the ones who produce the wealth of the nation. Mm-hmm. Politicians produce nothing. They have nothing that we can sell. And workers produce things that can be sold. They exchange their labor for wages. And if not for workers, there will be no business. And yet business is being prioritized. It's really interesting because I was listening to all the discussions going on, and they talk about um, you know, how business needs stability. So you have to have very definite policies that you can follow so they feel stable and they feel safe. But nobody ever talks about families feeling stable. Mm. I mean, I, I, being a maternal child, I know that children who come from unstable home are also very disturbed emotionally. They have real problems yeah. focusing. They can't, you know, focus in schools. They don't know if they're going to get their next meal. They come to school without breakfast sometime. And it's harder for them to do anything, never mind go to school and study. The emotional state is in flux because they feel unstable. They feel they have no grounding in anything. So it disrupts the emotional status of children, the next generation. Totally. And all the discourse around how the weekend has totally changed and Sunday isn't this... You know, day of rest and family time anymore. That's, and they're using, <laughs> yeah, but they're using this argument, and it's like, well, hang on, but kids are actually in school all mm. day. So if you do have a family, like maybe the weekend has changed a little bit, but that's still two days you could have with your kid that that's you're right. cho- like, you need to work for that extra money, and just to say that it's ridiculous and they don't need that family time anymore, I think is really horrible. 
and is really going to hurt a lot of people in our community, which I don't think is fair or mm. like, at and, all. And okay. young people, you know, those who are in university or whatever, totally. they work Monday to Friday at uni, at their schoolwork and so on. And they only have Saturday, Sunday. That means they don't have any break. So they work Saturday, Sundays to make the meager amount they can to, to pay the rent and food and mm. whatever. So they work seven days a week, literally, if you, yeah. if you, if you think about their routine. Okay, young people can take a bit of, um, you know, hard work, but that's over the top. They need to have at least one rest day in the, in the mm-hmm. week. This is like third world conditions, like in India. A working week is um, a Monday to Saturday. So they only have Sunday to, to rest. So it's, it's going backwards further and further and further, taking it to worse than third world conditions, really. And then mm-hmm. you don't have penalty rates on top of that. Yeah. It's just insult to injury. Okay, so... What I might do, um, I'd go and see if our, our guest has arrived. She might be a bit late. Um, if you want to put some announcements on, Jacob, I'll just go and check. Here it is again, 3CR Community Radio, the Concrete Gang. We've got our annual pull-up down at the uh, on July the 10th on the RDO for construction workers down at the Palace Hotel, City Road, South Melbourne at 11 a.m., $20 tickets at the door, which entitles you a great food there. The Palace put on a great food. Also bring some extra, extra lovely, a few extra chickens in your pocket for the raffle tickets. $10 raffle ticket gives you a chance to win a string bean. It's a $5,000 travel voucher and a $500 booze voucher up for grabs. And live music from the Jaded Cats. Yes, so be there or be square to, to uh, South Melbourne, July the 10th on the RDO, 11am. City Road, South Melbourne, for the award-winning concrete game. Stand a struggle, stand a win. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. La, la, la. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Okay, welcome back to Friday Breakfast, Green Left Weekly Radio. And just before I move on, um, just a reminder for our regular listeners or new listeners that the um, Radiothon has raised a certain amount of money, but we need more to reach the target. So Radio for Change, we are the radical news people. So if you want to keep listening to alternative news and meaningful news, um, we invite you to donate um, to keep the radio uh, going. Uh, so, you know, even $5, um, it makes a, 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 ch- a difference. Uh, every, every cent makes a difference, really. And as you probably know... Um, anything over $2 is tax deductible so please dig deep and do donate to keep the program running so I want to move on to another news we talked about Lee Rian and, and what's happening in the Greens a bit uh, but <coughs> excuse me the key thing of course in that to learn is that she, Lee Rian and according to the news um, say, she said that She wanted to abide by the members in New South Wales. And, of course, the key thing is she didn't want to veer from the original um, policy of the Greens to stick to the original Gronsky. So just just on that point, I just want to read uh, a um, press release put out by the New South Wales Teachers 
Federation um, was released on the 24th of June. So it's really interesting because you don't get these figures clearly explained. And in this press release, they spell out some of the horrible um, implications if the, this new Gonski that's gone through Parliament is implemented. So this is the, the bottom line, guys. All private schools across Australia will automatically now receive 80% of the school resource standards called the SRS. And this is from the Commonwealth, regardless of need. So 80% of private schools, um, no, the, the, the private schools will get 80% of the SRS. In the meantime, the public schools will receive only 20% of the SRS from the Commonwealth. So that's a massive different difference. So all private schools also receive state funding, many above 20% of the SRS. These schools will now get 100% or more of the SRS from combined federal and state funding. Public schools, however, will not reach even the 95% of the SRS until 2023. So it's a 80-20 fixed rate enshrined in, enshrined in the law. Uh, an ongoing federal government commitment of 80% of SRS to private schools. So it's, it's in a way a strategy to move students from public to private schools and it's a stealth of um, moving from public education to private education. So more out-of-pocket expenses for children, which means children of the rich will get good education. And if you're in the poor sector, you get poor quality um, facilities, poor quality support uh, in, in public schools because you won't have all the facilities that the private schools have. So the previous funding agreements with the states, include, including New South Wales, are unilaterally terminated. So this means the billions of dollars due from 2018 will not be delivered. For New South Wales schools, um, the estimated loss would be 1.5 billion over the next four years. So the original Turnbull plan was for all schools to reach 20% and 80% uh, for by 10 years, but then this, this shenanigans that went on called negotiations reduced it to six, which then forced the Greens or some Greens and <clears throat> independents to vote for the legislation. So the federal government was scheduled to fully fund the um, SWD, lo- SWD loading in 2015. This was not, this did, does not happen. Under the plan passed by Parliament this, mo- uh, this morning, the 24th of June, um, the students with dis- disability will remain seriously <laughs> underfunded and that's a students with disability. That's what the SWD is. And indeed, in some states, the territory and territories, the SWD funding will be cut. So the federal government, in acknowledging the massive shortfall in their funding commitment, will attempt to force the states to lift their levels of funding or face funding cuts. The, this contradicts a central feature of the original Gonski model that argued that the level of government with the greatest capacity to raise revenue should do the heavy lifting. So the next steps. Our school's funding campaign will continue, says the, the, the press release by the Teachers Federation New South Wales. And they will meet, we will meet, we will never t- rest until we ensure the, that every public school is re- uh, resourced to a level that meets all students' needs. 
We acknowledge that both the ALP and the Greens opposed the Turnbull plan to cut funding and instead called for a much greater investment in public schools. The annual conference will determine the next steps of this campaign. Our school funding campaign has engaged hundreds of thousands, and they thank them for all that. So in reality, when you look at that and you look at what Olivia was doing, was she was opposing this 80-20 uh, funding, 80% for private schools and 20% for public. I just find it astounding. Mm. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, why are you uh, To them it does. For the rich it does. <laughs> <laughs> all those people. Yeah, who well, send. you know, their worldview is... Different. <laughs> to put it mildly, Grace. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely disgraceful. I cannot believe that. So. And one of the more consistent themes is that, you know, there's all these um, particular issues of underfunding of public schools, mm. and yet private schools always continue to receive um, government money. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I definitely still you know, stand by a position that I think Lee Rhiannon was right to oppose um, that bill and also that any kind of deal to make to make a less bad version of the deal by the Greens was, I think, uh, a bit of a mistake. Fortunately, I don't think it, it didn't end up ha- that didn't end up happening anyway, and it would have been extremely unlikely. That I, don't, I think any negotiations could have been um, come between the Greens and um, the Liberal Party, especially since the Liberal Party was already looking to the cross branches anyway. Mm. So um, there's a there's just a bit of an article. May I just give a bit of a plug um, to this action um, because my housemate happened to be part of this one. Um, so this is a uh, Sack Dutton says refugee activists, refugee activists from the Whistleblowers Activists and Citizens Line Waka hung a banner off the Channel Seven building in Melbourne's Docklands on June 27th. The Channel 7 building is in direct line of sight of the Border Force Headquarters and Customs House, where operational matters in Manus Island and Nauru refugee detention camps are managed. Spokesperson uh, Ziana Fraud said, Awaka staged this action to call on the federal government to repel the Border Force Act, evacuate the camps immediately, bring them here and end the illegal indefinite detention of refugee. The federal government and its federal detention industrial contractors have again sought to avoid being held to account with their proposal to settle the uh, matters class uh, action compensation case out of a court. <coughs> In proposing the settlement, the government denies all liability for mistreatment and false imprisonment of people on Manus Island. Some of the claimants have asked what good is a few thousand dollars when they remain in unsafe conditions and in fear of deportation back to danger. What good is hush money to people denied freedom and, and safety? By holding people in detention, the federal government is breaching Article 14.1 of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states everyone has a right to seek and enjoy and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. The action took place during um, Refugee Week and included a call for the sacking of Immigration Minister Pin Dudden and the closure of all onshore and offshore detention centres. Okay, the guest hasn't arrived yet, so we'll just keep going with the news. I think the other important thing that's um, coming to the fore and has, has literally entered the mainstream of concern for people is the housing issue or homelessness issue. It's a combination, actually. One impacts on the other. <coughs> and um, last week there was a, a protest in Northcote, um, and it was um, led by multiple people, the Greens, the Socialist Alliance, and um, Steve Jolly, who's an independent and a socialist, 
councillor for Yarra, and Sue Bolton, who's a councillor in Moorland, and Trent McCarthy from the Durban Council were all there supporting the protest. And um, the biggest problem is the plan by the state government to build high-rise units, demolish the current housing estates and build these units. And there are lots of um, intricate things in there that people don't realize. I mean, the, on the face, it sounds great that, oh, you're going to get new dwellings for the for people who are public tenants. But the reality is um, at the moment they have, uh, even if it is not as wonderful as people uh, would like, they have three-bedroom units for families and so on. And the new um, uh, proposal would be that they'll only have two-bedroom units, which means people who have got kids and live in three-bedroom units won't be able to return. And there's no alternative measures uh, given to these people who've got large families or even small families. With two kids, you need three bedrooms anyway. So that is a big issue. And this protest in Northcote um, was attended by a couple of hundred people, and the, all of the, all of the councillors um, spoke about um, what a terrible plight it was, and they wanted to defend and extend public housing. And one of the residents um, who lived who's lived there for 39 years spoke of the stress of living in limbo. And at the moment, nobody knows what's going to happen except the councils and state government in particular has, who has proposed these measures. And Sue Bolton has said that she reported some redevelop, hang on, what did she say? She said that about West Brunswick public housing estate, which is in her constituency, is also targeted for demolition and redevelopment and reported that some residents are planning to refuse to move and that a public meeting is planned there for the 15th of July for those who live in that area. So a massive expansion of public housing is happening, but the um, that's the that's, uh, uh, news that's put out by the state government, but re- the re- the meeting rejected the government's attempts to stigmatize public housing, she said. So the real communities are opposed to this so-called redevelopment. So there's a lot of things happening there, and that's not the only place. There's, this is happening all over the state, and different people are taking different actions around it. There's a few more news items. Um, it's interesting because because it's NADOC Day, we try to get um, one of the elders here to come and speak, and she hasn't turned up, but Something must have happened. So I want to read an article from Green Life Weekly about treaties that's been discussed by the community. Um, and this is an interesting one because this, ha- this sort of demand hasn't been raised before. And Gamila uh, uh, Raymond, Raymond Bubbly Weatherall, um, says that if we are going to have a representative body, then we need clan-specific treaties between nations uh, that revive the Songline since memorial. Now, it's interesting because treaty has been uh, something that people have raised many times, but it hasn't really been explored to the hilt, and not everybody believes the treaty is going to be the solution, but it's a better solution than just recognition. And there's various views in the community about that. So... Uh, Weatherall, a um, Gallimar, uh, let me say this correctly, Gamalare man from the Gunaguna and Birija clans. Um, the outcomes of the Uluru meeting at the end of May may have may not have changed his mind about the 
tokenism of constitutional recognition. So throughout the campaign, as well as the Uluru meeting, no grassroots voices had really been listened to or given proper weight in the discussion, he told Green Left Weekly. The Uluru statement was just another government voice through the mouths of black people, Megan Davis, Pat Addison, Noel Pearson. He's not alone in his view. Many grassroots First Nations people say the process that began in 2011 has been flawed from the outset. They do not want um, tokenism. The organizers of the Uluru Convention, which um, issued the a rather vague aspirational Uluru statement from the heart, insists the dis- dissenting voices had been listened to and campaign would take a different turn if they had listened to the dissenting voices. The Uluru Statement acknowledged that sovereignty, which is described as a spiritual notion, had not been ceded, and that crisis faces, the crisis facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is structural. Proportionally, um, it said, we are the most incarcerated on the people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. There should be our hope for the future. So we see that graphically in the Northern Territory in the recent past. So these dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. So this is the dissenting voice of the nation, different nations in Australia, because people think original people are a monolith, they're the same everywhere. And that was the attitude taken by the invaders, the, the colonizers of Australia. And it's really uh, interesting to note that different language groups were lumped together in various places, um, and they had to get on with, with each other although they could, couldn't communicate because they didn't speak um, the same language. So these, um, what are they called? Reserves, or, or um, there's another word for it. Anyway, so they, they were forced to live together, work together, eat together, but they couldn't communicate. And firstly, there was Terranalis, of course, that they were not a people. And then they were not recognized as different nations in, in, in Australia. And the hundreds of languages, there's a big rise in language revival now. So hopefully um, this new group that has come out of the Uluru um, discussions will take this further and clarify more issues for people who don't know much about the different clans and different languages spoken around Australia. So impressions given by Pearson, Anderson and the others and, and the Q&A on Q&A, this is, this is a couple of weeks ago, is that some are seeking to turn this process into political brokerage politics. And, but in reality, they are the ones who are doing that. They support the government. And the responses by government MPs since the Uluru statement suggest that none of these proposals are likely to get through any referendum processes if it happens at any time soon. So that's a voice of protest from the one clan in New South Wales, at least. Okay, so uh, news from Queensland. <coughs> Excuse me. So we have spoken about Rob Pine, who's an independent um, MP and probably one of the first disabled MPs in Australia. And he's been, um, I guess, the only person who's radical among all the MPs we see around Australia. So he has made a statement in the Queensland Parliament on the 16th 
this uh, last month while holding up a piece of uh, bleached coral. So this is moving on to environmental issues. So this this is coral, bleached coral. Be scared. Uh, be afraid. It will not hurt you. But the global warming that kills that killed it will. This bleached coral is the canary in the coal mine, so he said. The coral was once part of the Great Barrier Reef, 10,000 years old. Ecosystem, one of the natural wonders of the world. Tens of thousands of men and women who work in the um, electrodes of these, who sit in, the, in this house, such as electrodes of uh, Boron River, Mulgrave and Cairns, rely on, on coral for their livelihoods. This coral that has sustained thriving tourism and fishing industries for decades in a World Heritage Wilderness area that can be seen from space is dying due to global warming. So we know all about global warming. We all we all know all about Adani and its attempt to um, build a coal mine. Mm. What do you think, Grace, about the coal mine? <laughs> Give us your, your, your two cents piece on this issue. <laughs> oh, just chucking me in the deep end on my first day on Friday breakfast. Um, I think it's really bad idea, obviously, to Why? have the world's, <laughs> Australia's biggest coal mine up no. there um, at a time where, you know, we're seeing the effects of climate change hitting in the reef and in extreme weather patterns that are happening around Australia and around the world. And I think we have to acknowledge that it's almost too late and to build a coal mine and to be having all that pollution up there. And that's just the environmental impacts that doesn't, you know, include... Um, the the First Nations people up there that, you know, it's on their country and they don't want this mine up there as well. So I think there's lots of contentious issues around it and I think we shouldn't be doing it and it's just ridiculous. I know a lot of people feel that way, even though they don't all they don't know all the details. Mm. They just know coal is like old news. Yeah. You don't use it anymore. No. And also all this stuff with the government giving them heaps of money for that That's as well. Right. It's like, well if this was It's econ- our money. I know. Money. It's like if this is economically viable, why are they asking the government to give them a ridiculous amount of money to mm. float this thing? It's like billions, yeah. not just yeah. a few hundred. And how many unemployed people could, could get a job? If they gave that, that billion dollars as wages to those workers, totally. they'd be better off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I was in yeah. Cairns last week, actually, went out to the reef. And it was beautiful. It's so amazing. Mm. But there, I, like I saw all the coral breaching and it's like... Ouch. Yeah. And the amount of tourism dollars and, you know, all that stuff that they get revenue and jobs and stuff from that. It's like we also need to be protecting the reef and the environment up there because it's the reef and the environment but also that's a way of getting more jobs and people in that tourism industry as well rather than in coal yeah it's interesting we don't hear enough about small business around that issue what did you see when you were there um was there any statements any protests any any discussion banners that i saw Mm. on the main highway between cairns and port douglas which was really exciting, but um, I was on a family holiday, so I just kind of hanged out with my mom, my sister, and didn't really... You had a political holiday. I had an apolitical <laughs> holiday. <laughs> and that's the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> it was a holiday, not a solidarity mission, but yeah. That's good. Okay, so we have another article here about um, Aboriginal issues. So the following is a statement issued by the participants of the Stand Up 17 conference 
That concluded with a rally in Bantua in Alice Springs on the 26th of June. So, of course, no one's heard about this conference in mainstream media, so you'll only find it in the Green Lab Weekly. Um, So, one of the participants, Rosalie Kunath-Mangs, says, You better believe it, when the intervention first hit in 2007, community councils were decimated. And Matthew Ryan says, trying to get the government to listen to us is like a brick wall. <laughs> so Elaine Peckham said, when they took, when the intervention came, they took away services from homelands, no health services. I had to move back to town. I didn't want to. And then another quote says, 10 years is too long. 10 years of hardship, neglect and broken promises. We want Aboriginal control for Aboriginal people by Aboriginal people. We need to keep our culture strong. We need to be in control of decision-making. We want self-determination. After 10 years, the intervention has met none of its objectives. There are more people in jail, more children being taken away. There is more unemployment. This Stand Up 2017 conference makes the following comments and calls out. Repeal racist intervention laws. Racist laws introduced through the intervention have created apartheid and are still with us. Repeal the Stronger Futures laws. Repeal changes to social security law that allow for control over our money. End the ban on consideration of customary law in bail and sentencing. Bring back the permit system. And then in regards to community governments, they say we have our own structures. Our voices have been put down and oppressed. The conference calls for restoring community councils and transferring assets back to the communities from the shires. This will improve people's lives. Town camps want more houses, more parks, childcare at the community centres and control of their money. This needs to be compensation for town camps. It's time to pay the rent. Good. And there's more. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, um, so much being said by Aboriginal people, by the people of the original nation and people don't listen, just don't listen. And um, that seems to be the theme of the government these days. But I want to sort of go to uh, some news from France uh, written by Elizabeth Latham before we go to announcements. Um, she, she's uh, analysing, Elizabeth Latham has analysed the elections in France and it's an interesting analysis because no one else talks about this analysis and, of course, you can read the full article in Green Left Weekly and um, the subscriptions, of course, are welcome. Um, so the General Confederation of Labour expects the new changes to dramatically expand the areas in which an enterprise agreement can undercut industry levels agreements. So that's the headlines for this um, article. And the article looks at, despite winning a clear majority, the stability of the government is questionable. In the week after the uh, second round, the government had four ministers resign over a 48-hour period. And Macron had a great victory, um, and that's, of course, enormous because he was a, a not a, a forerunner, um, and yet he swept across the, the country with his victory. And then the four ministers resigning due to, uh, to corruption is a, a bit of a blight on, his, uh, on the records. And also, I guess it, it shows that this government is no, not exactly a squeaky clean one. So the um, 
article actually looks at the left rather than just the two mainstream parties and the um, right-wing uh, mob that lost the elections. However, the losers were the left parties out of the election, and the combined left vote, including um, Melanchon's France Unbound, was the lowest combined vote in the first round of socialist communists since World War Two. The Socialist Party and its allies won just 45 seats down from 331 in 2012, which is a massive loss. So the FI, which is uh, Melanchon's party, um, allowing it to form its own parliamentary group, the French, it, it won 17 seats, so it has its own group. The French Communist Party, PCF, received the lowest vote ever, but still increased its seat tally from 7 to 11, which is interesting. Um, there were efforts to form a united parliamentary group between the FI and PCF. However, attempts were blocked by ongoing tension between the groups, which is, is a bit pity. But the PCF and FI have pledged to work together to fight against um, Macron's neoliberal agenda, which is a key thing. Everybody sort of romanticizing this young man, um, you know, in, in the face of um, the horrible uh, elections that they had. Uh, and the loss of the other traditional parties, and it was almost romanticized to the level like you know, it's almost like Pierre Trudeau in in um, Canada. But this guy is a dead set neoliberal, which is uh, somehow shoved to the back room. So if Macron is to be stopped, it will be the streets. Um, at least that's what the left thinks. The first major attack looming against the popular classes in the new proposed workplace laws is glaring. On the 20th of June, the government presented an enabling bill that would introduce a temporary ordinance to undermine the labor code. Once an enabling law is passed, such ordinances are short-term orders that change the laws for a period of time, which the legislation is still being debated. So the changes are expected to further weaken the historic principle in French industrial relations that um, three levels of arguments, national industry and agreements, national industry and enterprise, and should only... Um, improved workers, supposedly, but the rights as agreements flow down to the local level. Since 2004, changes to the Fra- France's labor law began to allow enterprise-level agreements to undermine industry-level agreements to a limited extent. The General Confederation of um, Labor, which is the equivalent of the ACTU here, expects the new changes to dramatically, dramatically expand the areas in which the enterprise agreement can undercut industry-level agreements. Obviously, the enterprise agreements are more progressive than um, the um, enterprise agreements. I guess the enterprise agreements there wouldn't be not much different from the EBAs we have here, mm. which yeah. is going to mean all the, the problems we are facing at the moment. Okay, the law, uh, the laws remove the ability of unions representing more than 50% of workers in a workplace to veto an agreement. Um, and if the new agreement undercuts existing conditions, it won't automatically apply to existing workers. However, the uh, old labor law, the Al Khomri law, uh, allow a company to sack any worker who refuses to accept new lower conditions. So <laughs> this is going to be fun in France from now, that's for sure. So protests have primarily um, started, have been led by the Socialist Front, which is the FS, and a section of the more militant unions have begun to organize. So the battle has already started, I guess. The, um, uh, 
the united um, front of all the left groups have a series of small demonstrations across France to coincide with the MPs taking their seats. So the unions have called for joint mobilizations on the 12th of September. So I guess watch this space is what we should say. So France has, you know, romanticized it is in the news, in the mainstream media. There's a lot of trouble brewing. Exactly what this um, fi- ex-finance minister from the previous government, now the president of France, is going to do, he and his government, will be something that we need to watch carefully um, while the press continues to romanticize him. Um, you know, it's a bit like Pierre Trudeau in, in, in France, just a lot worse. Anyway, we, it's almost time for... Um, oh, well, how about we, I'll play a quick announcement just to take a bit of a breather, and then we'll go straight into the activist calendar. Yeah. Radiothon 2017. 3CR, Radio for Change. Nine four one nine eight three double seven. Three CR dot org dot au. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Three CR Radio for Change. That's what I want. Nine four one nine eight three double seven. That's what I want. Three CR dot org dot au. That's what I want. Radiothon 2017, 3CR, Radio for Change. Your love gives me such a thrill. But your love won't pay my bills. I want money. Okay, it's um, we're time for that time of the, um, of the show where we, where we read out announcements for the activist calendar. So there seems to be a lot of things going on, and today it's NAIDOC week, and there's a festival and a march. Um, the pre-march festival starts at 11 o'clock, and the march will go f- uh, starting at 11.45. Um, they're going from the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service in Nicholson Street in Fitzroy, um, and this year they welcome all people to come and join them and march with them. And then later this evening, Professor Ga- Gary Foley is giving a free lecture, the Nelson Mandela Day Lecture. It's called Mandela's Legacy, Global Prospects and Challenges. So that's uh, at 6pm at the Story Hall in Swanson Street. That's part of RMIT. And also there's some music by somebody called Ezekiel Fox, who is also... I think it's Ezekiel Ox. Ox, not Fox, there's no F. Um, so that's from 6 till 9 at the Perseverance at 196 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. And tomorrow in Greensboro, there is a film screening called Guarding the Galilee that is about um, the reef and the impacts of the Adani Carmichael mine, if that goes ahead. So that's a gold coin donation at 2 o'clock, and that's at the Green Hills Neighbourhood House in Community Drive, Greensboro. It's hosted by the Australian Conservation Fund. And also on Saturday, there's a forum called uh, the Venezuela-Brazil Solidarity. And so that starts at 6.30 at Trades Hall in Carlton, and that's hosted by Lasnet. And then on Sunday... There's a fundraiser for Greenfield Tower, which is the um, tower in 
London that burnt down a couple of weeks ago. So that's at the Gasometer Hotel in Collingwood. So all proceeds will go to the Harrow Youth Club in West London. And then next week, there is a protest about Adani again. And that is on Wednesday, the 12th of July, at Kelly O'Dwyer's office in the Higgins Illiterate. So that is at 1343 Melvin Road at 10.45. Do you want to read some? Yep. So um, the next, uh, in terms of other actions, is going to be a protest on the 15th of July on a Saturday. Um, Proto and Combat Do Not Fund Adani, which is um, brought to you by the Kuyong Stop Adani Action Group. Um, and that will be at 11 a.m. on a Saturday, July 15th at the CBE A Branch in Camberwell, 734 Burke Road. Um, on Saturday, July 15th, um, there will be a Nelson Mandela International Day. Um, basically a tribute to Mandela's extraordinary um, humanitarian values and leadership with music, dance, spoken word and more, 2 to 6pm, and that's at the Federation Square in the city. And for more info, you can visit Nelson Mandela Day. Also on Saturday the 15th at 2pm, there's a public meeting that's called Help Save Public Housing, No Sell-Off of the Estates. So that is at the Richard Lynch Senior Citizen Centre, which is 27 Peacock Street in Brunswick West. Yep. Um, And then also on Sunday, the 23rd of July, um, there'll be a celebration of of the Cuban Revolution with great music and a documentary from Cuba. Um, That's happening at the Utilitarian Church on 110 Gray Street in East Melbourne. Um, and the, the film is uh, Cuba's Ambassador to the UK, Teresa Resident, speaks on the October Revolution. Um, it costs over it costs around fifteen dollars, and it's organised by the Australian Cuba Friendship Society. Um, there's actually still a number of more um, announcements, and I kind of just want to make a bit of a plug for some specific ones. Um, on From Saturday, July 22nd um, to the Monday the 24th, there'll be um, the AYCC, Australian Youth Climate Coalition Conference, happening in La Trobe University, um, titled Power Shift 2017. And um, on Sunday the 30th of July... There will be um, a jam for jobs for, and justice. Um, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union invites you to our special fundraiser, fabulous brands, raffles and prizes, 2pm at the Belly Union Bar in the Trades Hall, corner of Ligon Street, Victoria Street in Carlton South. And also from August 18th to August 20th, um, the Radical Ideas Conference will be happening, which will be a weekend of discussion and debate for anyone interested in radical politics. And we've already, um, there's already been sessions confirmed with speakers such as Celeste Little being confirmed for a feminist panel. And they're also, we're look, um, they're also conference organisers are looking to get other international guest speakers on the agenda. So that will be at the ETU building in North Melbourne on Arden Street, and you can find out more info by searching um, www.radicalideasconference.com.au. Um, so that's happening from August 18th to 20th. Right. So um, I might just go play a quick... I think that's it for the announcement, so I'll just play a quick song um, that we'll just have playing until we get into our first interview. Thank you. 
Okay, we have um, Ken Canning, uh, an Aboriginal elder from New South Wales online, to discuss a NATO quake. Morning, Ken. How are you? Good, good. good. How are you? Oh, very well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, tired from all the events, but good. Yeah. Uh, a lot of happening, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, and you guys a lot have of celebration. Yes, too much celebration. <laughs> yeah. So I thought yeah, maybe we could. Sorry. Sorry. Lucky I don't drink. I've been in a lot of trouble with it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought we could discuss the importance of NADOC. In fact, the the history, you know, um, of NADOC. I don't think many people realize how NADOC, uh, as a week of celebration, actually came up. I wonder if you could tell us about that, if you know. Well, um, as I know, it was decades ago where people got together. I think, it, and I also think it uh, sprung out, it was an idea that sprung out of uh, many ideas that came out of the 1938 day of mourning. Um, and, uh, there were, you know, to celebrate, uh, a day, um, a day to, to, you know, have a look at our culture and that for the rest of the communities. And, um, you know, there were people who got together and the, the NADOC term is, uh, National Aboriginal uh, Day of Observance Committee. So they they actually had a committee that was named that, and it was to celebrate that uh, a particular day, which later on became a week. Um, and it's always it was always in July. But I remember in um, 
I think it was in the 1980s where uh, Clive Holding, who we affectionately call Baldy Holding, uh, <laughs> an Aboriginal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, decided it interfered with his ministerial um, uh, duties and uh, decided to change it till September. Oh. And that, yeah, yeah, he made a decision to change December. He didn't consult with anybody, of course. Of course. But that went over like a lead balloon and it didn't really work. You know, they, I, mean, I think it was probably around a year or two that he tried it. People still had um, uh, our day on Fridays, and uh, as we did, and uh, I think this was before everything was really happening on a large scale for a week. But uh, he was promoting putting things on on September. It didn't have, it didn't really work, and it went back to July. So, which is um, good. Strong the middle. And in, in more recent years, the whole week's become. I noticed I, I was out of the country for three years, and when I came back, it was a lot bigger. I went. I left in 2010, come back in 2013, and uh, everything was bigger. You know, there was um, committees in nearly every uh, suburb, and prior to that, it was just. Things were just happening all around different organisations and uh, things like that. And, um, yeah, it's gotten a lot, lot bigger. Mm, it's hard to keep up with sometimes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, but it's a good thing, though. More people are getting involved and getting political and active. And that's what you well, want. It, it is a good thing. I mean, there's, there's, there's two sides of the coin. There's some people that are a little bit unhappy with it because... Um, uh, and I, I can see their point. You know, the, the positive side is where there are non-Aboriginal people come along and they, they learn. Yep. They learn things they haven't learned before. And, and it's a time for us to get together and, um, you know, recognise ourselves as uh, still sovereign people. And I, I certainly know in the Gleeberry we show films which promote uh, our sovereignty and part of our history and the struggles we've gone through, you know, so... We're educated, the broader community are celebrating ourselves, um, the struggle that we've had to get to to be here today. Uh, having said that, there's, a, there's people who think, you know, there's a lot of money poured into NATO mm. uh, week in, in a more modern area. And I, and I see that point too, is that, you know, maybe before it was, when it was um, less commercialised, mm. uh, it was a good thing, but now there's there's a stack of money going into it where while we've still got a lot of social issues that we're facing, you know, maybe that money could be spent a little bit more towards um, social issues. I was quite happy years ago here in Sydney we'd have um, the ABC unit would run stuff. I worked in a unit in uh, uh, within UTS and we'd run stuff. That was a, would happen out of our own budget. Other organisations would run stuff and... And then on Friday, we'd be down at Alexander Park and um, just have a big day. You know? But that was good, and it wasn't over-commercialised, and there wasn't uh, a lot of money being poured into it. And I think some of the critics now might have a, a point that there is uh, probably a little... It's gone a bit too commercialised. Uh, mm. um, yeah, you got uh, things happening everywhere, I think. Yeah, we could probably do it with the, that budget going to... Aboriginal people are homeless or things like this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a bit like one uh, big party and, and not, not enough recognition of the uh, terrible social state of, well, uh, of young yeah, people. Yeah, I think that some, sometimes it's going the other way. Um, you know, we're recognising this languages. We have different themes, but I, I don't know. I, 
I just still think that in some cases we're not talking enough about some of the historical events that, uh, um, that this country has tried to hide. And I think you know, it is a perfect opportunity to have an audience to um, really hit home the atrocities that this country has forced upon our peoples. Mm. Also, ways of addressing the social problems faced by the community as well is enormous. And in fact, um, despite the closer gap measures that have been um, implemented, the like for example, children living out of care has actually increased. Has been the worst ever in the history of this country, where children have been removed from the parents. And incarceration also has been uh, dramatically increased as well. So well, I it's guess quadrupled. It's yes. quadrupled, and for women it's gone up tenfold, and I think in the last decade. And uh, yeah, these these statistics. I mean, if you're looking at closing the gap statistics, if you look at um, uh, getting the uh, life expectancy rate up to that of non-Aboriginal people, under the current rate we're going, the government's not telling people this, but under the current rate, to get the to have the same life expectancy would would take um, 490 years to achieve. That's right. That was a Monash study, so, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and that, you know, so you, when, they, when they were saying you know, certain elements in close the gap uh, failed, they didn't really clarify how badly they failed. Mm. And that, mm. that was one of them. You know, I mean, everybody has the right to uh, longevity. Mm. And, um, you know, it seems that not enough energy is putting into our people's health. And that, that starts from when we're born, of course. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's not just about um, looking after us when we're getting older. It's looking after us from uh, the day of birth and right through. But if, we, if we're going to take another 490 years to get there, <laughs> that's, mm. uh, that's an abysmal failure that the government should put its hand up and openly admit to and not have some other, have a university research that information for the public they should be putting their hand up and saying, look, this is what we've done wrong and this is how wrong we've got it. And then they should go back to the grassroots community and start seeking advice how to get it right. And that's what they're doing wrong. They're taking advice from the chosen few, the ones who think they walk on water. Yes. And not, <laughs> I don't like to name names with people. Yeah, but we've got the names, don't worry. <laughs> we've got the names. But, 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 well, you know, the Pearsons and, you know, you get... Uh, the Pearsons, you get, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm try, I try to think of their names, but they lose me because they become that in, insignificant. Either the the Warren Mundines and um, and uh, young Cashman and people like that who, you know, on Invasion Day a couple of years ago, stood up here in Sydney to an audience and said Aboriginal people need to forget the past and move towards the future, you know, and oh, wow. an advisory committee and, <laughs> you know... Um, and the professor down there who comes from Queensland, um, Marsha Langton, you know, they're all, uh, just seemed to price it, got on Q&A the other night, made yes. an absolute fool of herself. Mm. Uh, because the statistics, when, the, the problem with her, 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 I think, I just quoted a statistic that was done by, based on a research model. She was quoting statistics. So when she was asked where she got the statistics from, she said, my mother told me. Mm. That's terrific, you know. Well, you know, my uncle told me when I was little that I was a girl, but he got it wrong. You know? So that's, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, that's so ridiculous. Yes. So, but the, these are the people that these are the people that um, 
governments are listening to. Of course, and they want and, to listen uh, to them. Yeah, and you know, and they they actually get this uh, godlike complex and start walking on water and turning water into wine, doing all sorts of funny things. And um, then and the government is missing the point from a grassroots level. Mm. As people shifted that far away from the grassroots communities, that yeah. I think the nearest they get to grassroots black followers uh, if they accidentally turn on NITV. Mm. So what, uh, what do you think um, can is a way forward for the community because they are coming out of the Uluru um, meeting and so on there are a bunch of dis- dissidents and you may or may not agree with their specific point of view. Well but we don't have to agree, no no we don't have to agree this, that, that, that's, yeah, that's part of it. us being diverse we, we definitely don't have to agree and that's that's my point. There's been a big call for treaty. I'm not convinced treaty's the way to go um, mm. at this point because um, my um, main uh, objection to that is you're making a treaty with people that uh, stole the country. Yep. People that still don't recognise that this is land that's never ceded. It's people that still don't recognise they committed war and genocide on our people. Mm. And the rapes and the killings of children are still not historical fact within our society and this government is living in denial. Now I don't, I don't think I want to make a treaty with people who are still lying to their own constituents and lying for themselves. And also the um, treaty falls within their legal so, premise, doesn't it? But, well, I, I don't think, I don't think you, you've got to think like they think, you know, if you can try to, it's a bit difficult because you know, our federal governments, our politicians are very warped human beings. But, um, if you've lived in environments, I did when I was younger, they were called prisons where you meet warped individuals. You learn to think like warped people. So that's and you know, let's face it, um, our politicians um, are not much better than common criminals. They're thieves in suits. Um, where well, you've got to learn to think like them. They're sitting in a position of privilege and power. Mm. They're not going to give that up with a written document. That's they're right. not going to write a document that's going to. Um, appease everybody. Hmm. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of problems with treaty. Uh, what form will it take? Uh, which group will uh, it be aimed at? And there's a whole lot of things. So what I think has to happen first is um, a truly elected body, and that means if you have to put an, uh, an electoral um, poll, a polling booth on every corner in the bloody country, uh, have Aboriginal people 16 years and up voting for somebody from their community to be a representative, that, that then becomes a massive advisory body that uh, is solely responsible for advising to the federal government about on Aboriginal affairs, and the federal government is then bound to take that advice. Eventually, when you have this body uh, succeeding, which it will, it can't, you can't go any worse than what these governments are doing. The only way you can get any worse then what our federal and state governments doing is throw us all off a cliff. That's the only way you get worse. They're absolutely abysmal. Um, once we start solving some problems from a grassroots election with proper people who know their communities, we can then move for a shift of powers, a separation of powers. They govern their lot, we govern our lot. Hmm. And the, the money's not coming from them. The money should come from a tax put on uh, companies that operate in this country, and that's our, our compensation for them taking the wealth out of our Mother Earth. Mm. So that's, this money comes to us 
to govern ourselves and there should be a complete separation of powers. So, mm. Therefore, the, the federal and state governments would have nothing to do with us. We would govern our own, own peoples mm. by duly elected bodies. Mm. And um, I hesitate to call it a parliament, but in Finland, for instance, they have a separate parliament mm. and it's working a lot better than what it was before they separated their powers. Mm. Now, there, there are other indigenous countries in that those areas that uh, have moved or are moving towards the same model, uh, and they're, they're getting a lot more done and achieved than they are. But, you know, you, you go to the federal government, you're bashing your head against the wall. I've often said their idea of policies are committing genocide by government policy, mm. and that, that's one of our problems. I, I just don't trust them at all. If you look at the illegalities of the intervention, and uh, that was another act of warfare, in my opinion, and the biggest land grab since 1788, uh, but, you know, the government's been allowed to do that. And you know, anybody with a, you know, a half an ounce of intelligence can see what was going on and what has happened there and the accusations that were levelled against our people and the stigma that we've had to carry with that was since proven to be false, yet it's still allowed to go on. I'd say we don't need a Northern Territory intervention. We need an intervention to keep state and federal politicians, particularly I'm talking about the Liberal and Labor Party, to keep them away from us, to keep them away. Because once they get into, our, into Aboriginal affairs, they're like a virus and we die. Mm. I'm, I'm not too happy with having to answer today. So, so I think we do need work towards a model where we can separate our powers and have our own decision making. Then we could talk about treaties amongst ourselves. We won't need a treaty with them because we'll be running our own programs. Mm. So that brings us to the fact that you, you'd like to see NEDOC week as a more politicised, more awareness awareing, uh, uh, raising uh, much more political dis- politicised discussion rather than this um, superficial celebration. So that's... Well, that, it- <laughs> you know, down to kindergarten, I'd like to see that more political. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to That's talk right. about uh, Aboriginal issues in this country, the only reason, is, look, just look at it this way, the only reason we got made up was through political activists. Yep. And then it's been converted it to Shamir celebrations. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so let's look forward to you changing this agenda, Ken. <laughs> yeah, and thank you very much a, for being available. Yeah, thanks for being <laughs> available so early in the mornings. Uh, that's uh, the great revelation. So a different point of view because everybody talks about yeah. events across uh, different states. And this is yep. good to hear uh, a fantastic political input into it. Thanks, Ken. Have thank a great day. Much. Have a good day. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> so, thanks to Uncle Ken from uh, New South Wales to talking about um, uh, his view of um, his view of the um, NADOC week and what he would like happen there. So, we have come to the end of the program and apologies uh, for the fact that one of our guests didn't turn up. Um, must have been some glitch in her program. Yep. Uh, but... Um, in the studio, we've had Jacob, Grace. Um, it's her first day here. Yep. So we'll see how she progresses <laughs> and if she likes um, presenting with us and we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. So I hope all of you have a good day. And um, <coughs> once again, um, donations are still welcome to Radiothon um, for keeping uh, this program on air. And uh, hopefully we'll see you next week.
Hope all of you have a great day and stay tuned for BZE. Thanks. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming.